0: Do I have your full attention? Screw you.
1: Hello to Yogi, hello
0: to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby, Barney and Bradley.
2: Don't forget to go flaggings!
0: Well, parmé
1: all over the place. Get the money and how did we get the woman? But, yeah. There's always
0: magic at the movies.
1: What's in the basket? Because I'm sitting here eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich while we try to record with our voices.
2: <laughs> okay, how do we start this one? Uh. We never
1: think this through. We never... It always works out in the end, I guess. We just freestyle. Like Eminem in 8 Mile. (laughs) That's us recording a podcast. (laughs) I hope we also win an Academy Award that we don't deserve. Okay, well, um, I I guess one could say that after the thrilling response to the Connie Bennett episode, which hasn't occurred yet because it's not uploaded... Um, We thought we would follow it up with another double feature, this time from Anthony Mann's years at Republic, where he directed a lot of awful movies. I mean, the ones that we watched were actually extremely good, so they're not part of that awful contingent, but I'm not going to let him off the hook.
2: I'm not super familiar with Anthony Mann, actually, because Westerns are a big blind spot for me.
1: What kind of prairie dweller are you? I'm I'm fake. I'm a fake bitch. Kind of prairie dog. Shit kicking. No. Um. Well, see, and that's what I was thinking when I was watching these. M- more so the the first movie that we're going to talk about. But you see little flashes of his style. You know, you get a couple of those intriguing shots where you're like, oh, well, that's the man who's going to make Winchester 73. And right. then sometimes you're like, I, did he walk away from the camera? <laughs> But probably, that's probably exactly what happened. He's like, I got other stuff too. Do. I don't know a lot about man as a person, so I'm not gonna have many like interesting anecdotes to share, but we will have memes.
2: So the movies we watched this time, and Amelia, who is in prison, didn't watch these ones with us. It was just us. But we watched uh, Nobody's Darling from 1943 and Strangers in the Night from 1944. And again, I guess I should front load it this time instead of (laughs) saving it until the end. They are available online. Strangers in the Night is public domain on archive.org. And (laughs) Nobody's Darling is on YouTube in a quality that I can't begin to describe. It's terrible.
1: I believe the the colloquial term for that is butthole
2: yeah it's I think it, best describes it. Quality. it was mm-hmm. insane but it was
1: so bad that you didn't realize and well i mean i didn't realize either but if you said about what were you like 15 minutes into it and you're like oh my god that's gladys george <laughs>
2: yeah i had no idea and then
1: i would <laughs> look it up like on wikipedia shit. i was like oh
2: shit that's actually someone
1: yeah i don't know how much of that is i i don't know what ended up happening with the republic library my guess is that because so much of it fell into the public domain it kind of just like ended up like you know in a dumpster behind yeah. a burger king <laughs> and then eventually, because I know a lot of their movies have been put on DVD and Blu-ray by independent firms like um, Olive and Kino. So yeah, I'm gonna guess. Yeah, the whole...
2: uh, Strangers in the Night has apparently there's a Blu-ray out for that.
1: Well, I'm gonna acquire that. So yeah, Nobody's Darling, not so, not so lucky. Yeah, well, let's do Nobody's Darling because there's a lot of content that that's okay. there okay. a lot to unpack.
2: So this one was, um, it's a musical ostensibly, but. The first musical number doesn't kick in until like a good 15 minutes in the movie.
0: I could pretend this is a big chicken dinner. ain't so. I could pretend I was a contest winner.
2: What is it? It's kind of like a knockoff of the whole Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, let's put on a show, like, teens singing songs.
1: Yeah, Republic um, acquired their lead actress, whose name escapes me for a moment. I believe it's Mary Lee. They acquired Mary Lee, uh, according to her Wikipedia page, because again, to emphasize, we don't do any research when we come into these. uh, We just freestyle, like Eminem. Uh, And (laughs) (laughs) they acquired Mary Lee specifically to be kind of like a, a Judy Garland clone. Um, yeah yeah, a little bit of it because at the time deanna durbin it's it's off by a couple years because by this point in time deanna had started making more interesting movies but durbin had saved universal from bankruptcy and they'd had a lot of success with, with musical stars in general and that's something that kind of gets forgotten people think now it's like oh who were the big musical stars of that era and people think well like uh you know think of judy but they forget that you know irene dunn was marketed first and foremost as a musical star and then they forget that there's that whole like you know, you got Grace Moore, you have all these, like, opera singers who have been completely written out of the history because their movies suck. And <laughs> what's that one? There's one with um with Henry Fond and Lily Ponds from, like, 1936, like, My Dream is You or something. It's got some, some idiotic title. But uh, it, it makes sense that Republic would try and swerve into that Judy and in, in, in Ronk lane and try to replicate that success. Because those movies don't... They don't really, I mean, obviously, because they're they're made at MGM, they have excellent, you know, they've got good costumes, and they've got good sets and all that. But they they don't really need that. They don't really need the glitz and the glibber. It's very much, like you said, like a let's put on a show kind of movie, which is easy to make on a budget, because then it just looks amateurish, like actual children made it.
2: Yeah, just that sort of vogue for like uh teenager movies at a time when I guess the audience was probably more teenagers than it had been cuz all the guys are off at war and
1: Yeah, I mean I think it it you start to see the 40s has the real first kind of I guess probably since maybe the 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 early to mid 20s when movie going was still not I don't want to say scandalous but like specific enough that it was like a kid thing you know that's when you have like again you get like you get your buddy rogers you know and and those kind of guys who are very much like teen dream like tiger beat types and i think the 40s like like you said because everybody's off at war mothers are busy you know working their 15-hour shifts at the defense plants making windshields for B-20 bombers. They don't have time to go to the movies. And so you start to see a lot of um, teen idol types becoming real box office threats. People like Van Johnson, you know, uh, Van Johnson couldn't probably exist in any, any other era. So, yeah, I think this is probably a good business move for Republic. But I can't confirm that because I don't know anything Yeah, I've never read a book in my life. I haven't, me neither.
2: So this one is fittingly set at a boarding school, but it's like a boarding school for the children of celebrities. And all the kids are like these sort of weird little asexually reproduced, like, butted versions of all these, like, studio stars. They're like, oh, this girl's mother is a sweater girl, and, you know, so-and-so and -and -and so-and-so. Howdy, stranger.
0: I'm a foreigner myself from Amarillo. Texas. dad is Buck Lisa. The famous cowboy star? Yep
2: just
0: like buck and eats just like his horse
2: (laughs) and our protagonist played by mary lee her name is Janie. she's i guess her parents are kind of a sort of mary and doug type except they're still in the 40s yeah
1: a little bit of mary doug mary and doug a little bit of like bill and myrna if they were really married and not just in you know tin hat yeah shippers minds that's another thing we got to find out to what degree the tin hats were around being convinced that like different movie stars were like married and secretly like having babies like you remember the Robston shippers yeah and they thought like kirsten stewart was having all these babies like those people had to have been around in the 1930s i
2: would bet they were yeah there were probably a lot of them
1: i feel like because i know that myrna myrna's book she talks a little bit about people thinking that she was really married to bill off screen but just assuming like assuming that they were really a couple and not like fer- feverishly believing it but there's got to be those people. Yeah, definitely. That's some research we have to do. Anyway.
2: So um, Janie's at this boarding school, and she gets called home to see her mother because the studio is done with her, I guess, but her dad doesn't want her to know that. They, they're trying to cast him with a new younger woman. And he's like, I guess we're just not going to tell mom that they don't want her anymore. And instead I'm going to retire and tell her that it was like a joint choice that we made without her consent. <laughs> and uh, I guess Janie's there for like emotional support in this situation where the mother's being lied to. I, it's, it wasn't really super well thought out.
1: Well, just like most marital decisions that men make, it's unilateral <laughs> and not well thought out and it weaponizes the children. So <laughs> very true to life, I think. Uh, I thought it was interesting that... They're positing that just now is Gladys George too old to be a glamour star.
2: Yeah, she – I should have looked up how old she was at this point. I didn't do that. I have no idea. Even the easiest research – But um, she looks definitely like she would have already been well into, like, matron roles, even if she was a formerly, like, Mary Pickford type.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that that was weird. I did like the bit about how at home she has to get used to using newfangled appliances because nobody has servants anymore. I thought that was interesting. And I'm not sure if that's a wartime thing or if just, like, in the 40s it was, like, a bit maybe uncool to have people doing your bidding when you're trying to appeal as being, like, very normal to the public because in the 40s there's this emphasis upon you know uh normal behavior from movie stars they're just like us which obviously is not a thing at all in the previous generations i did one little bit of research which is just to confirm that i have my i'm stupid of brain because i was watching this and i was like oh like Louis Calhoun, like he had worked with joel on the silver horde and they were on a train going up north to film it and then he was like, you fucking suck, and you need to learn how to act. And then I was like, oh, no, wait, that was Louis Wolheim. And I don't have any Louis Calhoun stories. <laughs> so it's like, well, you can't talk about that on the podcast. Except now I have.
2: I kind of liked uh, Gladys George and Louis Calhoun in this. I thought they were pretty good for yeah. a movie like this. They were pretty funny. They were having fun with it. When – uh uh, Gladys George's introductory scene. She like she's knocked over her washing machine somehow or something, and she's like, "I'm drowning." And I thought that was very cute. And they had like sort of this this bitchy dynamic. I've
0: had enough of this, enough of you. My dear, that last cross was a trifle hammy. I believe you're overplaying it. I haven't even started. At the climax of this, you'll be back where you belong, playing the dashing hero of our next picture. Although I think you'd be better as the heavy you are you know a diabolical heavy and uh yeah i thought i
1: thought he was were cute and when he walks into the the lunchroom at, at the boarding school and he's telling the headmistress that he he probably should go in there because what if the kids react and she's like oh all of their parents are movie stars they're not going to give a shit but then she's like but don't walk past the the faculty because they're going to go gaga over you and then that one yeah. teacher is like oh, oh my god it's it's Farnsworth. <laughs> Which is cute. It was very cute. And I also, um, I enjoyed the sidekick that Janie has, whose father is a, is a cowboy star. Right.
2: And her name is just Texas. Yeah.
1: And then at the end of the movie, when Janie, spoiler alert, uh, is leaving school and then she's like, cause uh, very complicated plot purposes. And then she gives her an unused lipstick that she'd acquired to glam herself up for the, uh, the school musical review. And then Texas like, I sure am gonna get all pretty with this. <laughs> like full on like ma and pa kettle style. And I'm like, well, that was good. Yeah. That was, that's a good, that's good filmmaking. I think.
2: Honestly, the supporting characters in general are way better than uh, uh, Janie and what's his face, her love
1: interest. Janie's a bit of a dud and I have no idea who the kid is. He could be anybody. He could have turned, grown up to be a serial killer and I wouldn't know who this guy is. Who's Probably did. Probably did. And his father is supposed to be what kind of a, I don't know. They're like, oh, he used to be a Keystone cop, so I don't know if he's supposed to be kind of like a three stooges type, maybe. I'm not really I'm not really sure. But he was supposed to be a comedy star. I thought that was that was cute, how they gave the kids kind of different backstories, although I'm not sure if any of the women who were sweater girls would be old enough to have a teenage child.
2: Yeah, that was weird. 1943. So they're saying, like, like Lana Turner with this, like, 17-year-old yeah. daughter.
1: I don't even know if... I mean, I'm like, well, Jane Russell, but it's like Jane Russell also wouldn't have been old enough. And yeah, I don't think any of those women would have been old enough to have teenage children.
2: They just wanted the, like, sexy blonde girl yeah. villain character.
1: Yeah. Uh, and the... the The foot shit, I feel like you should address. How could she with those big feet of hers? (laughs) Good night, Jason.
0: You're going to be a tall girl, Janie. Big feet's always a sign. (laughs) But when he said that I didn't have an atom of talent, she hit him with her Oxford. One of those sensible shoes he pays $20 a pair for. Yes, ma'am. And they're three sizes too big, too. Janie, that's assault with a deadly weapon.
2: I would love if we could stop having to talk about feet on this show, but every goddamn movie has foot shit, apparently. Uh, Janie has big feet, and it's a running gag. And
1: It's a legitimate it just, part of the plot. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's why she gets I, kicked out of the, the chorus line. When they're beginning to stage their like little like, you know, high school follies review because her feet are so fucking big that she's just (laughs) clomping up and down the chorus line. It's ruining the mojo of the whole performance. Well,
2: I guess we're we're supposed to think Janie, much like Constance Bennett, is just appalling and disgusting and everyone hates her. (laughs) And the way they get to that because she's like the pretty good singer, daughter of Doug and Mary, is that they're like, well, she's got big ass feet and everyone thinks it's really gross uh and (laughs) it just keeps coming up
1: also like she doesn't have a boyfriend she's never gonna have a boyfriend because her feet are so fucking big and she's only interested in chuck the one with the keystone cop dad and chuck of course is like a budding director slash screenwriter and has has written this musical for everyone to perform And, and he's just really annoying in the way only a 14-year-old boy can be. Yeah, But it wasn't like we were talking about also while watching it. It's so weird seeing like actual teenagers playing like high school kids because you're so used to seeing like 30-year-olds like on Glee. Here's this 40-year-old man. Here's this man who remembers 1970s gas lines, and he's here to play <laughs> a high school sophomore.
2: Yeah, you were like, imagine this with how they would cast it today. It's yeah. absolutely insane
1: from Glee. to it's think like, about that. It's so, it, it's really weird. I'm like, they're so small and scrawny and ugh,
2: it's weird. And, they, and it really is. It's so wholesome. Like the plot itself, aside yeah. from all the fucking feet shit, it's just just some kids having having a time and they, they're obsessed with these uh sharpshooter pins that the boys give the girls and it's all like it's it's very innocent.
1: They at one point there's a scene where they're riding in that station wagon and they're doing a sing-along to row 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 your boat.
0: Life is but a dream row row your boat gently
1: them's got like a ukulele and we were like is this because this song is a folk song and uh they're by public domain and they don't have to pay for it but then later in the song they start you know the movie they start breaking out songs that have actual royalties involved so i was yeah disappointed to learn that it wasn't just to avoid spending any money on the music
2: yeah i guess teenagers in the 40s just loved singing like nursery rhymes and shit i know it was so weird
1: though because again like later on they do uh they do they do they do Blow Gabriel, blow. They do something else. I probably should have written down, but they do a, they do a couple of, of real pop numbers. <laughs> yeah, I was really hoping that at the end of the musical they get up there and start, you know, I don't know, doing like Jack Sprat could eat no fat kind of <laughs> thing. But they have to go in there with a real Cole Porter song. So uh it was it was it was fun, and they were cute. I also thought it was interesting how they broach the subject of Hollywood parents being neglectful. And, like, Janie says things about her mother, like, if only I could get her to take an interest in me, which is very, like, mommy dearest. And then uh, all the kids take the stuff that their parents send them, and then they sell them. One of the kids is a broker, so he takes a commission off the sales. He sells it to the milkman, and then the milkman sells them to other movie fans. So it'll be like... I loved this. Yes, the cowboy uh, star's daughter gets, like, his bandanas or whatever, and then they they sell them for... Like, for pocket money to, like, go buy food and clothes. And I thought that was so (laughs) cute. But then the implications are absolutely terrifying if you
2: think about who's actually buying this shit from
1: the I know. I love it, too. And then it was like, wasn't – oh, the the one girl uh, sells her mother's – the sweater girl mother's sweater. Like, literally one of her sweaters. I'm like, somebody's going to be jacking off to that with it, probably, actually. Somebody's using that as a masturbatory device. Very actually – kind of a weird plot line now that I think about it. Yeah, and also the fact that it's a Catholic boarding school, which I'm assuming <laughs> yeah. because they sing Agnes Day. Yeah, they're like Gregorian chanting in the morning. Yeah, and I was like, that's kind of odd, because I don't really know if there were that many Catholics at this point in the studio system. I could think of a few, but I don't think they would pose a, a majority. It's a really weird choice. It's really weird. And I'm like, well, if they just wanted them to sing, why can't they just sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat? <laughs> There's also some... There's also some furry shit. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So there's a dream sequence, because there always is. And it's insane to begin with. Chuck and his buddy, his little sidekick, who's also the guy who sells all the shit to the milkman are desperately looking for a singer for Chuck's horrible show and Janie rolls up and she's you know all she's all sexy she's got her hair up she's dressed like an old woman in the 80s <laughs> and uh, and then suddenly the the sweater girl's daughter who's like the bad guy kind of but there's really no actual conflict just appears in like a full body cat costume full <laughs> and on yeah,
1: suit fantasy that's all I was I was gonna say it's, yeah it's disgusting and repugnant and they should have cut it out. The whole movie, there would be like you, you chugging along. You'd be like, oh, that's cute. Oh, that's funny. Oh, you know, blah blah blah. And then something weird would happen, and you'd be like, hold on yeah. a second. Like when um, <laughs> Julius, who's the kid who is the 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 commissioner, uh, the the broker for all of their their fan materials. It compares himself and Chuck to Damon and Pythias. Like, there's just, like, really weird moments in this movie. Well, there's
2: also, I think it was Tex after after Janie is rejected by Chuck for, like, the Mm -hmm. 80th time because he just treats her like shit all the time. Uh, she's worried that Janie's gonna go off and kill herself and someone else I can't remember who any of these people were but basically what ends up happening is they're like listing off ways that people have killed themselves when they've been rejected by their their suitors or whatever and she's like my cousin knows someone who swallowed
1: a can opener (laughs) and we were like hold up (laughs) go back a second she couldn't
0: stand it any longer you're laughing at her cut her to the quick she's been gone two hours two hours why didn't you tell me before? Because my lips were sealed. But when Luana started telling me about a cousin of her friend who swallowed a candle...
1: Oh, don't you go? I suppose i have to find her and bring her back. I'm really surprised that that got past the the Hayes office. That's That was extremely weird. It was extremely weird. That was really surprising to me. I mean... yeah. A, a suicide gag in a movie literally aimed at children yeah. um is interesting I thought, I thought that was that that was a little funky there's some when Gladys George okay and we're gonna have to put this splice this audio into the podcast so that the listeners can make their own decisions but when you and I were watching it we both said, that when gladys george was explaining to janey that she too had been bullied in school she says something that sounds a hell of a lot like they used to call me poop face
0: (laughs) why at your age i i wore glasses braces on my teeth and was slightly pigeon-toed you weren't always glamorous at your age the kids all called me poop face
1: And, you know, I'm thinking about other words that that could be and that have consonants similar to a letter P. And none of them are good. Like boob face, kook face, (laughs) loose face. I like loose face. We need to take it to the police. Dude face. I know. I was like, my mom, I mentioned this to my mother and then she was like, oh, just, you know, call Mark Harmon and have him NCIS (laughs) this. My mom doesn't watch NCIS. I don't know where that joke came from about Mark Harmon, but she's always kind of making fun of Mark Harmon at random moments. I'm like, maybe there's a history there. I don't know. Oh, also, speaking of the foot shit, I forgot about this, but when they were talking about... So I guess, like, there's a slight suggestion in the movie that even though Janie's mother doesn't pay any attention to her, she is, like... The other kids, I guess, are just, like, slightly jealous because her mother is such a big star because she's, again, supposed to be Pickford or whatever. And it's, like, there's that bit where they're, like, talking about, like, all the money she spends on Janie, and then they say something like, she buys you $20 sensible shoes... (laughs) <laughs> which is funny because what is that like four hundred dollars and then yeah and then somebody comes like blah 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 and then Janie goes oh and they are three sizes too big so a couple of questions here one is Janie lying about her shoes being too big because she doesn't want people to think she actually has clown feet <laughs> or is Janie trying to imply that her mother is so jealous of her her youth you know her her effervescence and her her potential that she purposely buys her shoes that are 3 sizes too big to make her unpopular at school but they're still fucking 400 dollars <laughs> I uh, there's a lot to unpack there i mean the, the fact that she has to play like arbiter in her parents relationship she is the referee in this, this picturesque little movie marriage, which is also very funny and sad in a way, I <laughs> guess.
2: Yeah, it's a weird little movie, I, which I think is going to become like a rallying cry on this uh, bonus episode no, double feature thing we're trying to do. They're all just fucking weird.
1: It's definitely it's, – it's a real oddity and um, – I, it's it's fun because if if you like you know those kind of stupid little like backstage musicals and like the let's put on a show type things it's definitely worth watching uh yeah. nothing will probably ever approach the priceless reaction that you and i had when they started singing row 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 your boat so unfortunately <laughs> anyone listening to this will go into the movie expecting that you know like kids do and then like like teenagers do they start singing nursery rhymes
2: there's lots of like fun bizarre 40s teenager slang and shit too it's just
1: beanbag. when i was bean a bag. bean bag like, what the f- i need a dictionary i need a i need a i need a greatest gen to shiftless shitty socialist millennial uh <laughs> dictionary oh oh and the fact that people think that chuck and Janie are going off to elope and it turns into this like big scandal and there's pictures of them in the newspaper yeah it's like who gives a shit who cares <laughs> But people did care about the stuff in the 1940s because the kids of two, you know, or three or four movie stars, I guess, running off to get married, escaping their boarding school in a stolen station wagon, I guess, is like big news in the 1940s yeah. because they didn't have Mark Zuckerberg taking up the headlines. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> they just had that and the war in Japan. So all they had to, to think about. Got to focus on something. Got to focus on something. Poop face. I really want to know what that was. It was probably poop face. That's probably what they said. I give this movie six out of six can openers <laughs> <laughs> it perforating somebody's diaphragm. Or six out of six big clown shoes that are, are like saddle saddle shoe loafers, but they're for clowns. Rainbow <laughs> saddle shoes. <laughs> Bozo the Clown Bobby Soxer. So yeah, that was a good movie. That was fun. That was cute. Except for the end where they absolutely butcher... Gabriel.
2: Oh, that sucked. It was
1: bad. I fucking suck. Chuck fucking sucks as a director and he has no future in show business and I'm glad he's dead. Because <laughs> <laughs> he probably is, if we're being honest. I'm sure he's dead. He's, he's got to be dead. dead. Okay, so the second movie is... Strangers in the Night, 1944. These
2: titles are all very forgettable. Yeah. I kept thinking Nobody's Darling was Nobody's Fool.
1: <laughs> Nobody's Clown. <laughs> Nobody's Clown. <laughs> Strangers in the Night, more like... Just leave and call the police already, but whatever. This is a dumb movie, but excellent, excellent, excellent picture making.
2: Yes, and it's 56 minutes long, so it's not much of a commitment there. Yeah.
1: What happens in this movie?
2: That's a good question. Okay, so we open on, I guess, the Pacific Theater of World War Two. I don't think they ever actually say where he is. Yeah, it's just a really cheaply done, obviously, sort of battle scene. There's like
1: a banana plant. You're like, oh, okay, we're in the Pacific.
2: So our, our main character, kind of, I mean, he doesn't really actually show up a lot in the movie later on. He's a Marine who's injured. He's sent to a battlefield hospital. He's getting surgery, and then he's recuperating. And we find out that he's been uh, writing letters to this girl named Rosemary. Mary, and he found her name in the flyleaf of a book that he got through the Red Cross. And the book is one that I'd never heard of, but you had a big response to it. So you're going to have to tell me about that.
1: Um, so they happen. So he gets the the book from Rosemary, the phantom lady, uh, is, is a Shropshire Lad by A.E. Houseman, which was a very popular Edwardian, late Victorian kind of when you're a Shropshire lad. 1896 okay so it's the very uh, tail end of the victorian period and it's a it's a book of poetry that takes place in kind of this fictional dreamt of environs in rural england and it's about kind of like a loose collection of poems about like coming of age and the changing world and like young hormones and um I mean, it's constantly like everybody's in the poems is like, is like, there's a lot of suicide, hangings, <laughs> you know, executions by the state, uh, tortured love, you know, swallowing can openers, swallowing can openers. But it's also, and I, I kept, cause again, I keep being like, you can't keep bringing up gay shit every episode because it's not always relevant. But this is a particularly erotic book. <laughs> because a houseman who, who wrote it who was a famous uh classical scholar um this was kind of his way of expressing these like stunted like repressed emotions about being like a young man in you know this this idyllic english countryside who has all these feelings that he doesn't understand and he, he can't express to people and of course it's also funny um because this character uh not this character, but A.E. Houseman, who wrote A Shropshire Lad, is the character that Robert Sean Leonard won a Tony for playing. Oh God! So <laughs> Robert Sean Leonard is a long-standing joke in our in our in our within our little circle. So this is like yeah. a big. This was really funny when I was watching this. I was just like, Oh my God, we got an RSL reference in here. So anyway, but A Shropshire Lad is very much like it's just it's melodramatic poetry, and it's so good, and I love that book, and it was just so funny to see this. Piece. But it was also extremely popular. So because everybody could kind of connect with its like torch, it was very much like the rebel without a cause of its time. I guess is what I'm trying okay.
2: to say. Okay, yeah, I was gonna say it feels like a weird choice then but i guess maybe
1: not it was a big hit it went through a lot of of printings and it sold a lot of copies and it was it was a big deal and a big cultural kind of deal because it was one of those rare because again it's, it's impossible for us to imagine you know the youth embracing poetry <laughs> but like that was their thing now they just embrace the poetry of marshall mathers and then him, who won an awesome <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> anyway whatever so they're both so he gets a copy of a shropshire lad okay so yeah he he gets the book and
2: uh starts writing to this girl he's telling i think it was the nurse about it you know in the in the hospital as he's recuperating and then he's able to go home on leave and he goes to this town where this girl allegedly, Rosemary, lives. And on the train, he meets a woman doctor who we've already met in the context of she's uh, taking over this office in the small town and is, I guess, going around introducing herself to the previous doctor's patients. And she meets this older woman who lives in this, like, big, creepy house on a cliff with her weird little assistant, Ivy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman is Mrs. Blake. And... Mrs. Blake is, like, horrified by the presence of a woman doctor.
1: Understandably.
2: Yeah, she sends her away, basically. She's like, I don't need no fucking doctor. I'll be mm-hmm. fine. I'm I'm perfectly healthy. I'm 87 years old.
0: Well, doctor, what did Dr. Scala tell you about me? Oh, very little. However, he did say that since I'm to be the only doctor in town, I better get acquainted with you as you're apt to need me. Why should I need you? We're both in very good health. Really? I thought perhaps your condition... My I- dear... I do not need a doctor now, nor do I expect to need one in the future. Thank you. Mrs. Blake, I'm not trying to force myself on you. If you resent a woman doctor as much as you seem to, I'll certainly be sure not to come here again uninvited. I'll be sure, Dr. Ross, to the door. I can find my own way
2: out. Thank you. Good night. Good night. The lady doctor, Leslie, I believe, who's played by Virginia Gray, she meets John. She meets John on the train and puts down her copy of the same book and so for a second he thinks this must be rosemary but she's she's not. So they they bond over that on the train and then the train crashes, which totally took me by surprise.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's literally like, "Oh, she, she she's like, "Oh, that's, you know, blah blah, he's like this is where rosemary lives." And she's like, "Oh, that's the town that I I'm I'm moving to. I'm taking over the practice of a doctor who's retiring." And he's like, "Oh, weird. Have you ever met and then the train like, it just derails. <laughs> Which was so good. Like, that's storytelling. That's effective (laughs) storytelling. That's throwing an obstacle there so the characters can't just get to the bottom of this mystery in the first 15 minutes of the movie.
0: You see, I'm taking over practice in a small town called Monteflores. Monteflores? Yes, have you heard of it?
1: That's where I'm going. I wonder if you
0: happen
2: to know... (laughs)
0: it was great too
2: the way it was done it just like everything starts shaking the lights are flickering it's it was totally jarring it was like it was great i loved it i laughed out loud.
1: that was really good and very 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 funny
2: uh from there i guess they well she's a doctor so of course she has to help everyone who got fucking wrecked in this train crash and he helps her out i guess and then they go to the hotel and they're like you know i I think i like you you're very cute and so on and so forth (sighs) and uh Then the next day, John heads to the spooky mansion where Rosemary lives. And, of course, it's the same spooky mansion where Mrs. Blake lives. Oh, wow. Can you believe it? And uh, Mrs. Blake has this big portrait over her fireplace of Rosemary, allegedly. But Rosemary is not there, strangely enough. And I did look the portrait, the focus on the portrait. And I guess I'm just in Laura brain because I was researching it for our Laura episode, which we haven't recorded yet a little, little peek behind the curtain there. But no, um, this came out in September. Mm-hmm. And Laura came out in October, so there's there were a lot of it felt very laura-ish to me but i guess it was just a coincidence but there's this major focus on the portrait
1: oh yeah no it's very it's very laura it's very laura and it's also very rebecca which isn't a coincidence because uh the guy who wrote the well not he wrote the story so like the treatment for this movie is the same guy who wrote the treatment for rebecca and he also worked on bride of frankenstein so you got that kind of vibe like it has very much like a like a cross between like a rebecca and like a bride of frankenstein vibe it's very like eccentric and weird so yeah but it's definitely it's, it's very laura when we see the whole the whole thing with the portrait yeah absolutely and it also is a little bit um it reminds me also of um the portrait of gail russell's mother in the uninvited and uh the funny thing about this plot is that then the marine johnny is like that painting looks familiar yeah <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> this was my favorite
2: because he he studied painting in school before the war and so the minute he sees this portrait he's like i know that technique <laughs>
1: Uh, it's like, i it's so funny. It's like he doesn't even give like, I don't even think there's any reference to like him like being from San Francisco or something and that, but he's just like, oh, you know, kind of reminds me of this painter from San Francisco. And it's like, okay, yeah. it just looks like a painting to me, but all right. It
2: literally is just like a painting. It's just like, a painting. I, I don't know enough about painting to dispute it, yada yada. But like, yeah. I'm not convinced. By that painting, that he would recognize the style, the unique style of this painter. But he goes all the way to San Francisco to meet up with them and find out the backstory there. So I guess he must be really, you know, finely tuned with recognizing techniques, as he called it. Yes,
1: exactly. It's also, speaking of paintings, it's funny because when they first pull up uh, Virginia Gray and um, William Terry... Who plays Johnny when they're when they're first like pulling up to the kind of side you know sea swept little village or whatever that she's moved to it's like it's a very obvious like matte painting there's also yeah. another like of of the big like cliffside mansion that that the rosemary allegedly lives in and so it's just like it's just so obvious which i also love i love that there's like no pretension to it like it's a beautiful painting and everything and somebody worked very hard on it but it's like there's no attempt to make anything look even su- vaguely like superficially real which of course is my oh, no, favorite no. kind of movie because a movie is not real life and a movie shouldn't have to look like real life so yeah it is it is a filmed t- uh, filmed play it's not you know it's it's people talking in front of a camera reciting not real things that they're not really saying in real life For other people's (laughs) entertainment. So what else happens in this movie? I don't remember.
2: Uh, Well, Johnny, I guess, just stays at the house for a few days. I guess he thinks he's waiting for Rosemary. And Mrs. Blake tells him, you know, she's she's away. She's coming back. And so he just fucking, like, hangs out. Which was it's a little weird. There was a hotel that he could have stayed at, but he chooses not to. He's like, all right, I'll just hang out here.
1: And it's also extremely isolated, because not to spoiler alert, but at the end of the movie, when they call for an ambulance, it's like, oh, it'll be here in an hour. It's like, how far (laughs) up is this fucking house on this fucking cliff? How are you going to be able to, like, go get a sandwich or something? Like, you can't go anywhere, which is how they explain why Mrs. Blake's maid Is still sticking around with her, when the woman is obviously cuckoo because Mrs. Blake's banana pants. (laughs) So from the start,
2: Johnny's making like pretty questionable choices. Not to victim blame here, but (laughs) he's just rolled up to this house based on these letters that he's gotten from a woman he's never met, who he contacted through her name being on the inside of a book that he got through the Red Cross. So there's not a lot of connection here. And he's just like, all right, old lady, I'll take your word for it. I'll hang out here. After a couple days, he starts to kind of think this is a little bit weird. Yeah. Where's Rosemary? And he sort of expresses those concerns, I believe, to Leslie, the doctor. And Leslie's also like, "Eh, this is kind of strange. This woman's a bit kooky. I think it was around this point, too, that Ivy shows up at leslie's office and is like i need to tell you something about mrs blake but uh i'm afraid and there's a really good scene where leslie answers the phone and turns around and les or not leslie uh ivy's chair is just empty (laughs) she's just booked it which i thought was very funny you have to excuse me now mrs blake i'm really very busy
0: goodbye What the heck did you do to her? She went out of here like a bat out of,
1: well, whatever bats go out of. It's so, it, it's its such a good bit. And it's like, why are you so afraid of this old lady? Like, you could just quit your job. <laughs> I can I'm, just leave. I'm fairly certain there are other people who need mates. And they definitely do kind of draw this line, like, she is the only person that this old lady has. Like, she is her sole support yeah. system, you know, except for, except for Rosemary. And so she feels yeah. bound, you know, kind of duty bound to stay there. But it's like, I'd be on the next fucking train out of town. I'm not, you yeah.
2: know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not too worried about Mrs. Blake. She can she can starve.
1: And Mrs. Blake, who's played by, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, something like Helene Thimmig, who was an Austrian actress who, I guess, fled Germany – after Hitler's rise to power, um, is she really plays it to the hilt? I mean, it's a really yes. fun performance. Yeah, I, she did a really good ass job. I enjoyed her a lot. She talks a little bit like Paul Rubens on Thirty Rock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when Prince Gerhardt's like, "Thank you for coming to my movie party." Like that's what it reminded me of immediately. I was like, she sounds <laughs> just like Prince Gerhardt. So that was funny to me personally. You
0: seem very sure of yourself tonight something new it becomes you i'm your friend hilda and yet you defend that leslie woman
2: what's so wrong
0: Hilda? have you forgotten that john is engaged to rosemary
2: yeah she was having fun with that too much like in the previous movie with uh louis calhoun and gladys george they're yeah. all sort of like middle-aged actors just just having fun with anthony mann so thanks for that i mean it was i enjoyed it a lot
1: Johnny's kind of an idiot. He keeps waiting for Rosemary to show up and it's like after a while it should be fairly obvious that it's not going to happen, but okay.
2: Johnny also is played by this actor William Terry who I'm not really familiar with. He was in um Stage Door Canteen, I guess, and
1: he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, so I don't think anyone's yeah. very familiar with him.
2: Yeah. And my thought, my I wrote in my notes that between him and the uh the battlefield surgeon who we see at the beginning they are like two different like knockoff jack carson movie <laughs> god they're god. just like kind of lumpy like you know middle height no sweaty guys oh my
1: god you know what? was a horrible thought i just had when you said jack carson is that this movie is kind of like um what would happen if like christmas in connecticut had this horrible plot twist <laughs> where dennis morkin goes to barbara Stanwyck's <laughs> house but she's not actually there and is just cuddle sackle and then he like skins him or something <laughs> i would love that that would be really good they should have made that movie uh no definitely uh not to like you know disrespect the troops but johnny's not the best and brightest that america has to offer certainly No.
2: no he's he's a little slow i think
1: yeah and so he's just not and then eventually he's kind of like starting to get suspicious and then you know as virginia gray is like she's she knows that something's up but uh ivy the the maid ends up going to Virginia Gray, Doctor Virginia Gray, and is like, uh, you know, I really need something for my nerves, and so she prescribes her something. And meanwhile, the whole rosemary facade is starting to kind of crumble around Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Blake because she's yeah. she's trying to keep Johnny interested because she can tell there's something brewing between johnny and virginia gray and um i don't even remember oh doc Le- dr leslie i couldn't remember her character's name for a second so like she has a scene where she takes johnny up into rosemary's bedroom and then he's like this is a little weird it feels like an invasion of privacy i'm gonna go and she's like <laughs> what do you mean you don't want to fondle her sheets or whatever and um then uh she starts to get a little suspicious uh, concerning ivy running down the hour-long drive i guess down this mountain to go hang out <laughs> with dr virginia gray and she knows she knows something's up and so then she says that she's gonna report virginia gray to like the medical like licensure board and get her doctor her doctor's certificate taken away <laughs> for what i don't know but something then <laughs> ivy's like well you really shouldn't do that i think that's probably a bad idea like ivy just leave
2: ivy has nothing keeping her there i'm not convinced ivy's getting a paycheck she's just kind of like just existing in this like
1: cliff house and yeah she and like have to with what money is mrs blake doing all of this also yeah so then i you know uh ivy is, is prescribed a, a sedative <laughs> 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 which we'll get to in a second and um then mrs blake kind of has a, a a moment where she realizes that well you know ivy's gonna sound the alarm and johnny and virginia gray are, go- are gonna leave and possibly get mrs blake you know sectioned and she she has to figure out what to do And her and her instinct is to kill the only ally that she has in the entire movie (laughs) she's she's gonna stage an overdose
2: and she does this by entering ivy's room very normally and casually in the middle of the night with a glass of milk and just saying hey drink this and ivy has the brief sense to say I'm not going to drink the milk you want me to drink, Mrs. Blake, because you're fucking crazy and I know you kill people and make up ladies. But then Mrs. Blake, like, takes a sip and turns around and puts the poison in after that. And that's when Ivy's like, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I ever doubted you and just chugs this fucking milk (laughs) full of, like, sedatives.
0: No, no, I don't want it. Don't be foolish, Ivy, you silly child. It's only milk, look. Why should I want to harm you? Oh, forgive me, Hilda, forgive me. Try to forgive me. Please try to forget, too. No, please do. Yeah. It'll it.
2: It'll be good
1: for you. Yeah, so Ivy's dead. But as Ivy's dying, she's like, they're gonna find out. <laughs> they're gonna find out after she takes her, her you know Joan Fontaine in suspicion beverage <laughs> it's like I appreciate the fact she took all of her dying energy to be like well, oh, this was pointless thanks for nothing you still owe me three years worth of back wages
2: literally there's no way she was getting paid I refuse to no. believe it
1: she did have a good like view out her win- her, b- her bedroom though I was guilty of watching that I mean, that is kind of a sweet digs she's got sweet digs there so she is getting room and board I suppose johnny and dr virginia gray descend upon the house and um mrs blake decides that she's gonna she's gonna say that ivy i od'd and dr virginia gray is like well either she od'd or mm, she was murdered and mrs blake goes um well actually because you prescribed it the drug that (laughs) she od'd on i'm holding you personally responsible and then virginia gray has an absolutely incredible response (laughs) She says that um, she did not prescribe the drug. Oh, right. that was on the like the label on the bottle, right? Like she, she yeah, it was like verinol or yeah, something. She purposely gave her uh, like kind of like a placebo sedative, I guess, because she knew that Mrs. Blake was going to get up to something, get up to something nasty. And she says that she gave her phenobarbital, and we were both like, "That's yeah, fatal, isn't it?" <laughs> Well, it felt like it kind of defeated the purpose of a placebo.
2: Yeah. Like, you're still giving her a sedative.
1: And and she was like, you know, oh, like a full bottle of phenobarbital like wouldn't kill like a mouse or something. And I'm like, I don't know if that's accurate but i'm also not a pharmacist yeah, it doesn't sound right. so maybe it's just <laughs> odd because i was like phenobarbital anytime you've heard of a drug like that you're like hmm, it's probably dangerous i mean if you're gonna chug a whole bottle of it i feel like yeah and so mrs blake the little uh you know the the little hamster wheel in her brain the little you know monkey with the symbols is clapping in her brain and she's trying to figure <laughs> out like a new way to get out of this um and so then she's like oh, actually, Ivy wrote a suicide note. Let me go get it. And then she leaves the house. They just let her go. (laughs) And then she runs outside. she sets the most looney
2: tunes ass booby trap in the history of film
1: oh my god yeah you're gonna have to because i couldn't tell from the absolute ass quality print that we were watching what the fuck she was yeah, doing I, I thought she was like cutting the I brakes or something.
2: yeah i did too i thought she cut the brakes but then um they go outside they think everything's kind of like okay now for some reason because they're fucking morons and uh they're they're going to get in the car and they're like i don't have the keys where are the keys and they're like they're in the car i didn't lock it so that's how you know it's 1944 yeah. and so johnny's like okay i'll go to the other side and i'll open it on the other side and he steps like sort of toward the edge of the cliff because the, the car's parked on the edge of the cliff and like
1: you do you live on a cliff
2: he just fucking like eats it over a trip wire it's like there's a trip wire and a little like a little thing covering it and he like beans it over the cliff
1: (laughs) i laughed a lot as you can tell it's so good in large part because the fact that the old lady who is like she is disabled you know she has enough time to get out of the house to walk through her big ass house get out of the house (laughs) come down into the driveway plant the booby trap get back up into the house and at no point do Johnny and Doctor Virginia Gray like look out the window that they're standing in what front of? Doing that whole time they're standing in front of a window, yeah. And they just don't look outside. It's like you know, ignore the, you know the man behind the curtain kind of deal. And that was just so funny to me. I just it was yeah. Great. Let's not be curious at all about where the crazy old murderer lady, who obviously is a crazy old murderer at this point in the narrative, anyway.
2: Yeah. So he he like tumbles over the edge of the cliff, but he hangs just enough that Virginia Gray is able to save him because
1: oh, she's so buff and strong well she's a doctor you
2: know um so true so then they they finally like rub two brain cells together and they're like okay so let's let's trick this bitch and so they both just like wail horribly these blood-curdling screams
0: nothing stands in our way now police department this is mrs blake Mrs. Morton Blake speaking. Thirty-three Clifftop Road. There has just been an accident. Two people have fallen over the cliff.
2: Dr. Ross and a friend of hers. They had just left my house.
0: We'll just wait with you, Mrs. Blake, until they come.
2: And uh, Mrs. Blake is in the house and she hears them screaming and thinks, "Okay, my trap." Well, no, she—they tricked this bitch too because I also thought the trap
1: (laughs) worked. I thought they pulled. Yeah, you did. uh, i was fully convinced that they were both dead and she was gonna get away with the murders i got fooled by a republic programmer from 1944 so
2: so yeah they they pull off their big scheme they scream and uh mrs blake's like okay i'm home free alone in my cliff cliff building with nobody to take care of me or feed me and uh i'm defenseless
1: great Vulnerable and alone.
2: So Johnny and Doctor Leslie appear like behind her because they're not really dead. And uh, (laughs) contrary to
1: (laughs) my expectations of the narrative, (laughs) oh my god,
2: holy! So then, yeah. So then from there, I don't really remember what seconds of nonsense unfold from there until arguably like the best thing I've ever seen in any movie happened.
1: Yeah, she decides that because they've they've called the police and the police will be here and an hour or whatever um right yeah she, mrs blake goes over to the fireplace and she drops to her knees and she she prays to the portrait of rosemary and she's like oh rosemary we're really in it now you gotta save me we're fucked they're gonna come take you away from me and then it happens
2: the the fucking portrait just falls on her head and she's dead it just collapses and she is fucking dead
1: no i was just thinking like again like a like laura au where mcpherson is hanging out at the apartment (laughs) and instead of drinking a lot of bourbon and falling asleep or whatever he does like the portrait of laura just falls over and just you know knocks him the fuck out We were discussing the physics of this particular incident and whether, like, the painting would actually kill her. And I was like, well, I guess the frame's kind of heavy, you know. It is huge. It's, like, ten feet tall, probably. So it is a big portrait. But how did it just fall off the wall so easily? Was
2: that God? I was wondering what the implication was meant to be there. Because... Like I said, while we were watching it, I had forgotten that I had read the synopsis and knew exactly what the plot was. And so at some point during the movie, I'm thinking Rosemary is like her dead daughter that she's impersonating. And then it's revealed, no, she just completely fabricated this daughter because she never had a, a daughter
1: yeah, and made up. I like, thought fake, there was some sort of like one. baby Jane situation going on. and <laughs> It's like, no, actually, she's just nuts. Yeah. So it's not like Rosemary's
2: ghost is killing her. It's I, I don't know what we were supposed to take from that, if it's just, like, she's kind of been killed by her own, like,
1: her own insanity. The answer is that Ivy is so bad at hanging paintings. <laughs> yeah, basically. She did a really shit job. Also, because then, like, when it falls off, it's like the, the wallpaper peels back a little bit. And, like, Ivy did not you know, she did not use a level. There was a stud probably interfering with this. And the, it was just very shallowly placed. And then the old lady dropped her knees and, and created a little bit of a mini tremor, like an earthquake, if you will. <laughs> and then it just came over and it just it obliterated her <laughs> into a million little pieces, like the Wicked Witch of the West. Well, I mean, Ivy wasn't getting paid. So what do you yeah, expect? Yeah, it was her plan all along. She's playing the long game. That movie was insane. That was an insane that movie. Was truly, that was truly insane. So what's the verdict? Um, the verdict is that both Strangers in the Night and Nobody's Darling are extremely watchable and a really good fun if you're not anticipating seeing um, movie stars. If you're somebody who's only in the movies for movie stars, then Republic Pictures are not for you.
2: I agree. I enjoyed them both. I think they were fun to watch. I think Strangers in the Night is more... Of a sort of a curiosity, like it, it has more, um, more to it. Uh, but they were both a lot of fun to watch.
1: Yeah, and I think I think they're fun for seeing um, a, another side of people whom you, you you don't see really often getting exciting, kind of like juicy roles, like Virginia Grey and Louis Calhoun. Yeah. So yeah, as novelties, as historical novelties, and as early milestones in man's career, they're very interesting, and also as a reflection of the independent uh studios that are operating in hollywood in the early 40s they are pretty shining achievements i think yeah i think strangers in the night definitely stands up there for me as like um the uninvited's like ugly sister
2: yeah unlike the connie bennett double feature where we had one stinker and one gem we enjoyed both of these so yeah. Mm-hmm. uh yeah we'd recommend them seek them out
1: there are they both public domain is nobody's darling public domain
2: uh nobody's darling i really i don't think anyone knows it exists (laughs) it's literally just that one one copy but uh yeah strangers in the night is very easy to find nobody's darling is currently easy to find but it looks like shit but watch it anyway it's fun
1: i mean row 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 your boat is also public domain so the content (laughs) in nobody's nobody's darling is definitely public domain see you guys later bye-bye bye
0: let's not change the subject. I was trying to tell you how swell I think you are. You're kind, Johnny, but I'm very tired. I've had what you might call a hectic day. Yeah. Guess a little sack duty wouldn't hurt anybody. Sack duty? It's a marine word for hitting the hay. Oh.